Uh, turn to page 960 in the Chumash, that would be, or 960, 961, chapter 11 of Bamidbar. Bamidbar, Eretz Hi, Laura. Nine sixty. Hi, Bob. No. Um, here's what we're going to we're meeting next week, and then we're going to meet in July. But I have to confirm when the yard sale is so that we to make sure we I'm not promising a date that. Uh, I, we can't do. So I was hoping to know by now, but I don't. So keep your eyes peeled, and we'll know for certain the July schedule next week. July 11th to 12th, I saw it in email. Right, but the weeks prior, I have to know when the social hall's filling up or if we can use the sanctuary instead that day. I just, I assume it's going to work out. So we're going to be, so let me just say, my anticipation is we're going to meet, I know we're meeting next week. The week after that, I'm away. That's the, correct. That means next week, the 18th, yes. The 25th, no. And then I anticipate continuing what would be on July 2nd, I think. Uh, but I'll know that in a couple of hours after I meet. <laughs> with, okay. So, so can I ask a question? Is the intention that you would uh, be going through the month of, of uh, July and August, or would you just right now I'm thinking that I'll go through July, and then take a short break in August, and pick up in latter or August. Okay, I'll have dates for you soon. Okay, I would guess that probably not the second and ninth. No. Of the yard sale. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out. <laughs> yes, indeedy do. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Are you going to find out? Yeah. And then I'll let you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, why don't you find in? <laughs> All right. It's a rough crowd. I know, I know, but that's, you, you, you know, you, you take the good with the bad. Okay. All right. Let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah. Yes, all of that fascinating discussion prior to this is now recorded. Forever. Forever. Even though this week's Torah portion is Shalach Lecha, Last week, we made it to the middle of Baha'u'llah, and I just felt like, let's keep going with Baha'u'llah. So if you weren't here last week, and you're looking at page 961, which is Bamidbar chapter 11. If you look at page 960, the facing page, you'll see these famous lines, which is where we got to last week, in verse 35. Vayehi bin Soa Ha'aron Vayomer Moshe. And that's become part of the liturgy for a long time when we take the Torah out of the ark. That's what we chant. 
And when we put the Torah back in the ark after having read from it, we say verse 36. So, also, if you look closely at the end of verse 34 and the end of verse 36, there are these upside-down letter nun. Uh, anyone who, who can identify Hebrew letters will be able to see those upside-down letter nuns. It is. That's how it appears. That's how it appears in the Torah scroll. And so it's reproduced here uh, in our printed edition. The meaning and origin of these upside-down nuns is, to me, still completely obscure. I just have to say that. There are many midrashic interpretations, which are um, none of which are overwhelmingly compelling to me. Uh, So I don't know. Uh, and so I don't want to dwell on it since I have nothing intelligent to say. <laughs> the asterisk is there to point you in this printed edition to the bottom of that column where you'll see the note. But the asterisk is not in the Torah. No. You see the asterisk? There's a note at the bottom that says Simonit Minuzeret Begamnikret Nun Hafucha called an upside-down letter nun. Okay. So, but what does seem clear to me is that this insertion, which is just uh, um, these two verses that are distinctly set apart from the rest of the text in the Torah scroll, uh, they are very distinct serve as some kind of uh, uh, threshold between getting ready to journey, which has been going on the first 10 chapters of the Book of Numbers, and actually beginning the journey away from the mountain, uh, which is what starts in chapter 11. So there's some kind of, uh, there's some there's something significant there that these, when you look in a Torah scroll, there's this very distinctive marking between uh, the preparations for the journey and the journey itself. And we were talking about this last time, which is why I didn't want to stop. Because what uh, Aviva Zornberg was pointing out in her new book, Bewilderments, I mentioned this uh, uh, before, this is classic of Eva Zornberg. I'm enjoying reading it very much. And because the book is called In the Wilderness, Bamidbar, she chose to title her book Bewilderments. It's a great title because this journey is going to become very bewildering. Uh, everyone's going to lose their bearings really fast. And the next many chapters are chaotic and, and tragic and unanticipated. So uh, she points out that the change, I mentioned this at the end of class last week, is in verse 30, uh, in verse 31, Moses is pleading with his father-in-law to come with them on the journey and says, please don't leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness and can be our guide. And then says, 
And if you come with us, v'haya hatov hahu asher yetiv Adonai imanu v'hetavnu lach. Tov means good. Goodness. The goodness uh, that God has extended to us in goodness, that goodness will be extended to you. So this is what we were saying last time, that Moses is anticipating now going to the land. And come on. And that's where the tragedy comes in. Because in verse 11, verse 1, it says, Vayehi ha'am kemit onanim ra ba'oznei Adonai. And the people became like complainers, bad complainers, evil complainers before in the ears of yod And the word ra, as some of you know, which means bad, and the word tov is its opposite, which means good. When they're in the garden, they eat from the tree of tov, da'at tov vera, the knowledge of good and bad. And so tov and ra may be some of the first words you learn if you ever learned Hebrew. Um, uh, they're baby words. Right? Good, bad. <laughs> and the reason I'm mentioning that is because of how where my thoughts go as we keep reading this story. Think, think about babies um, as one of, the lev- one of the things to think about. So they take to complaining bitterly, ra, but Adonai. So immediately, the first line after this insertion is a complete turnabout of the energy of Moses's uh, expectation. And the Eternal heard and was incensed. Vayichar apo, his nostrils flared. That's what that literally means. That's the word for anger. In uh, That's the, one of the main words for getting angry in the Torah, is flaring nostrils. Vativ ar bam esh, Adonai, v'tochal b'ktsei hamachane. And the, the fire of the eternal broke out or bur- burned, uh, burned and consumed around the edges of the camp. Really, don't go literal here. This is a story. And if you read it as a story, it's really, think of it once upon a time. Wasn't that you who said that, Patricia? When was it? When was it not? My friend Nancy. Your friend Nancy says, once upon a time. When was that time? When was not that time? The children of Israel started complaining. Okay, so that's the... the, um, When was not that time? Yeah. Uh, Now, we've heard about the fire of Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh many times now, right? It's like one of the central images because when it is when it is treated correctly, it's a source of energy and bounty for the people, of goodness. It's the fire that warms them and lights their way. It's the fire that comes down on the altar when Aaron uh, does all the right preparations and consumes their offering but it's the fire that comes down and consumes Nadav and Avihu when they rush in. Uh, it's the fire 
the ish boer is also the fire, interestingly, in the burning bush. Because the same words are used. Hasneb boer ve'eneno ukal and is not consumed. Uh, so this divine fire is, it's like the, the sparks of divinity that, that it's very potent. My uh, friend Leila Berner described it as, and I've said this before, as a nuclear reactor. Uh, interesting. No, it wasn't Leila. It was um, Tikva Freimer Kensky of Blessed Memory, our teacher in rabbinical school. She called it a... Um, um, she compared it to a nuclear reactor where if you want to harness it, you better be on top of things. Um, but if you do harness it, you have unlimited power, right? If you mess up, it breaks out and destroys. Uh, it's the energy in the atom, the, the, the flame in the burning bush. It's, it's the energy of life. It's the potential in all life. I love the metaphor. Yes? But it's, all, it's also the nature of passion within us. Good. That the passion can be a fire that can ignite tremendously. But when it's ignited without boundaries or preparation, Good. Let's follow that metaphor too. Not just not just the the metaphor of physics, but the metaphor of of even, even the passion for our spiritual life. How many Hasidic stories we have where the passion went either unbounded, which is the balance and discernment, or without preparation, and that passion disintegrates. Disintegrates. Thank you. Yes, let's follow that one too. So this is also the passion within each of us that burns like a, that burns passionately within us and has to be tended, trained, channeled, utilized, um, but also respected. Um, all those things. It can't be squelched, and yet it needs our loving, tending, all of it. Beautiful. Stu? There was another one that um, we go through different stages, the I-it, the I-thou, and then the third one is the I-I, which is the so-called non-dual, the, the God. Oh. And it could have been that they wanted to be so close to God, they were willing to give that up to be part of the I-I. Right. I-I captain. There's only I. There's only I-I-I. Not I, it, or I, thou. Beautiful. Um, so, the people cross, so it's ravaging the outskirts of the camp. It's consuming, tochal. And the people, Yitzhak, cry out to Moses. And Moses prayed to God, to Yudhevape, and the fire was tishka, extinguished. Vayikra shem hamakom hahu tav eira. They named that place Tav'ira, which means the place of burning. Ki va'ara vam esh Adonai. Because the fire of the eternal had broken out there in that place. Now, that story is going to be paralleled by the next story, which goes in much greater detail. I'm open to comments anytime. 
because actually, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. I just wanted to read it with you. The Ha'asaf Suf, verse 4, one of the best words in the Torah. Riffraff. It's a nice translation because it's onomatopoeic, just like the Hebrew. Asaf Suf. That's also called, uh, the Asaf Suf, riffraff, seems to be what it means. And uh, the other way that those that riffraff is called earlier in Exodus is the Erev Rav, the mixed, mixed, the, the, the mixed multitudes, you know. So we don't know exactly what Asaf Suf is, but riffraff seems good to me. I like it. Who, what, again, I don't know exactly what it means, but this sentence is fascinating. The riffraff asher bekirbo, in their midst, and what else does kirbo mean? Within them, right? So again, if this is a story and we are all the objects in the story and all the pieces in the story, then this riffraff is also some aspect of the collective I, the collective me, and the collective us. It's not someone else. Tit avu ta'ava felt a gluttonous craving. Now, we've studied this line before because it's so fascinating to me. Hit avu ta'ava means craved a craving. The riffraff within us craved a craving. That's the literal translation. They craved a craving. They didn't crave, they, they craved a craving. There they are in the wilderness, and they miss, what are they miss? What are they missing? Meat. Meat, maybe they're missing craving. Uh, Maybe this uh, idea of, in in spiritual talk, um, spiritual enlightenment is typically described as an ability to transcend our cravings, right? And address everything before us with a sense of equanimity so that we're not like, we're not a lusting after anything. We're not, we're observing, engaging, but not following our cravings. At the end of Shlach Lecha, the next portion, which continues this whole theme of the people sort of not being able to handle this, it says, Put on tzitzit on your clothes and look at them, the fringes, so you don't go off after the lusts of your heart or the cravings of your eyes. So, um, so some, something that they need to be able to learn how to accomplish to become the people they were, that God in, hopes and intends his creations to be, God's creations to be, is the ability not to be ruled by our cravings. Or addictions. Well, addictions, but addictions are cravings that have yeah. completely won. Right. That's true. So right. they craved craving is what you're saying? Mm-hmm. They craved so, a craving. So here's, here's one thought about it. When they were slaves, they craved freedom. And now they have freedom, but they haven't yet found a purpose to crave and work towards and go after. So they're in... The wilderness, basically. They're in this state of nothing. I mean... No, they're in a state of nothing. Let me bounce off that and say, on the other hand, they have received the Torah. 
So maybe what they wish for is the time before they had to follow Torah. Before they had adopted and said, we're in, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna follow a righteous path now. I don't know, Laura? Well, I was thinking of what you were talking before about babies. And this is baby behavior to be craving, craving. I don't know what I, why I'm crying. I'm just crying. I don't know what I want. I just want. <laughs> just want. There, yes, uh, I've, I've said this before too, but when my kids were little, I, I could see that their essence was that they, were, they had a big wanter. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, that's what they were made of, you know. Right. They want, every, they want the world. Yeah. Uh, I want what I want when I want it. Now. Now. <laughs> and that's, that's craving a craving. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gail, what did you want to say? When you get it. I, I, would, I would blaze kind of, I think, the same thought that related that. Uh, I, I'm thinking about how they're described in slavery as insect like swarming. Uh-huh, or not just insect, but also... Um, um, uh, creatures that crawl on their bellies. Yeah. And that they've been given the commandments, they've been they've agreed to accept the covenant, but they don't have the feeling for it. And when they say, as they do further on, in Egypt we have the material, we have the leeks, we have the onions, now we don't have that anymore. We have nothing. And our soul is are dried up. So they, there's a next level that they need to get to that they don't even have, they, they would like to have the desire to get to that level. <laughs> I mean, they've committed themselves, but it's like, what have we done? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the craving to crave that next, to move up. Good. Otherwise, it's just exchanging one rule for another. If, mm -hmm. you, if you haven't internalized it, in, in, in a way that me is meaningful to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're a slave again. It's almost a state of, for me, a state of numbness. Yeah. Numbness. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you don't even know you need something, but you want to need something. You want to be out of numbness, but you, you don't have the will or the wherewithal or the means to move from that. Thank you. Thank you. Pauline? I, I see it a little different on a, um, in terms of a spiritual journey for us human beings um, in the situation that as human beings, we, we have a need for something, be it freedom, be it closeness to God, whatever it is on our spiritual journey. And then we get, we get a piece of it, we get the meal, and we get filled up. And so we're okay. For, very, very short time, minutes or hours or days. And right away, our mind, where do we go? What, what, there's something else I need. What could it be? There's this craving. I'm craving the craving. And we hook on to whatever that next craving might be. And, and so th this is a dynamic situation, not only for the people of Israel in the wilderness, but I think the wilderness we all travel in in this world, which is very much like that wilderness. Bewildering. 
you know? <laughs> yes, and, and it's like, um, you know, I even think about learning in this way, you know? Yeah. When I was in school, I, I, I couldn't wait to have a weekend or something, you know, this freedom of not having homework or not having something to prepare. And then I get to a stage where, oh my God, I, you know, I, I really want to learn something. I'll take a, take a course, or, or I have nothing really, you know, to stimulate me this weekend. I think I'll do this. We do that continuously. Yeah. And what a lesson this is for us. What happens, I think what happens when we do that, you know, that when we get full or we have what we think we need at the moment, we say thank you to whatever great spirit and feel close to that spirit and feel in line and feel balanced. And then that's over when we get our next craving. Yeah. That's the way it seems. Thank you. Jay? I could say something that's a little twist on it. Um, and what comes to mind is, when, is, is the burning bush when you said Moses walked through that. He saw the burning bush and he could not have seen the burning bush. The same thing with the clouds. They, you know, paying attention. And if, this, if you just think of all the good poets, they were all saying, you know, from Perot to Whitman to Emerson, stay in the moment. Yes. Now, the moment here, they have miracles in front of their eyes. They're missing the wildernesses that they're not seeing the miracles in front of their eyes. They're craving, craving, missing this attentiveness of what's happening in front of their eyes. And I think, you know, <coughs> you just say, T.S. Eliot said it best. I mean, in this poet. But one of the greatest lines, I think, in the quartet is when he said, um, quick now, here now, always. And he said it's, it's a, a condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. So then not... Did you say costing no less than everything? Costing no less than oh, everything. oh, would you repeat that, please? Uh, yeah, he's saying quick now, here now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. So these guys are missing the whole point. They got miracles in front of them, and they're thinking of fish. They're, they're, they're not in that moment. They would never see the burning bush. They would never see the clouds. And you're not surprised that they're paying the price for that. Thank you. Yeah. Did you say quit now what now? Oh, just T.S. Eliot. Uh, Eliot. Say it again. Say it again. It's at the end of his poem, Quartet. It's a very mystical poem. But he says, quit now, here now, always. That's right. Just get here now. I mean, here. Be here. H-E-R-E. A condition of complete simplicity costing everything. No, costing no, no less than everything. No less than everything. Oh, we will, we will. <laughs> Hold on, I want to sit. I want to sit with that for a sec. Okay. It's the last three lines. And by the way, that whole poem is very difficult because remember you're talking about the past, the present, the future. Read Cortez. Okay. He throws that all into perspective. My literary education is very wanting. I'm very interested. Quick now, here now, always. Yes, it costs everything. And it's a stage of development for me to even realize that I'm craving a craving. 
I need to know that that's part of my unfoldment in this. And then saying yes, I realize every time I say yes to life, it feels like sometimes it costs everything to do that because I can't go back. Yes, yes. They left every, they gave up everything for a complete unknown. This, well, they gave up nothing. <laughs> but everything that they thought they... They had, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Stu? Yeah, I, I've been reading a lot of Rami Shapiro, but he had a good, a good description on one thing of what freedom is. Two men are in a boat, and one guy is drilling a hole in the boat. And, and the other guy say, what are you doing? You're going to drown in this boat. No, no, my feet are cold. I can do what I want on my side of the boat. So that's, that's, that's also the craving of a teenager. You try and use logic to a teenager, you have to wait before you can get what you want. I want it now, and that's what babies are. And we try to give it to them, or else we distract them. You distract them, that works. But with a teenager, Thank you. it's hard to distract Thank you. That story, I believe, is a version of a Talmudic story. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, let's keep all that in the bank and just keep going, all right? Um, the riffraff within them craved a craving. And the Israelites wept. Yivku, bocheh. They cried. This is not some fancy word. Boo-hoo-hoo, this is crying. Um, by Yivku, also the children of Israel, and said, who's going to give us meat to eat? Zacharnu et hadaga asher nochal chinam. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. For free. Okay, that word is crucial. Yeah. What the heck was free about the fish they eat in? Think about this line. I, I don't even know where to start with it. It's so deep that this is how they remember. I know. Uh, so, but this was where, remember, that if they made their bricks and didn't make their quota, then Pharaoh said, well, now you don't get any straw. Double your output. It's like the fish we got to eat for free. <laughs> so there's a lot of Midrash about this because the, the Midrash, the rabbinic Midrash, and let's see what you think about this, says, yes, we were free from commandments. We were free from these obligations we've taken on. So, yes, they were, they were, in a sense, they were complete children, complete infants. Or, I don't know, I, I don't, like I said, I just want to explore this with you because it's so rich. Yes, Amy? You know, this is the first time I've um, read this particular part. Of, um, and, and when I was reading that, you know, four and five, I thought, they're whining. And then I turned the page, and, then, and that's exactly what they said. That's right. <laughs> they, they said, what do you they're want? whining. I they're mean, whining. They're crying and whining. Yeah, it's like, you know, nothing, nothing's good enough. And, 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 and I, I don't know if infants, is, you know, I would almost say like four or five-year-olds. Okay. Yeah. Or everything in between, or any time we act like either of those things. Right, right. Carol? So the predictable uh, comment for me is... Uh, 
in uh, the song Free from A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, yeah. he sings, he, after, after extolling freedom, he sings, now not so fast, I didn't think if I were free, I, what, if it's, shit, I just You'll get it, you'll get um, it. If I were free, then nothing would be free. And if I'm beat now and then, what does it matter? <laughs> right? And, 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 but I think I've lost the, the uh, I have a roof, three meals a day. That's, that's the line I missed. So if I were free, I don't know where my mind is. Anyway, it's right there. It's right there. I, if I were free, it, it's like I, I don't. I'm a slave, but I also eat three meals a day, whatever they get. I have a roof. I have a roof three meals a day. And I don't connect that to the work that I do. I don't connect it. It's just there. Because if, because if I don't have it, I can't go out and do my slave work. So I don't, I, I'm not even yet used to the exchange of, of work for making a living. Or work for a purpose. Uh, work or work for a purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, even the purpose of making a living. Yeah. For yes. Mm -hmm. Well, the self-esteem is so low that they're just grateful someone gave them fish. What? They didn't expect anything. Thank, thank you for giving me fish. Um, they, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Laura? But I think also the condition of slavery, however we want to view it, whether it's real slavery or not, is situation where you don't have choice. No choice. Where someone else, you don't have to think, I mean, you're not allowed to think. Mm -hmm. You're not a moral actor. You're not a moral actor. You're not an actor you've been reduced, as an instrument. Uh, you, yes, you've been reduced to something that just serves someone else's purpose. Right, you're a tool. Mm -hmm. You're not an agent of your destiny. Right. But there's a safety and... Uh, security in that as well. A yes of a kind that makes us very stunted but safe. This is out in the wilderness where we're not safe and we're not stunted. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Thoughts? And, and we have to make choices. And we have to make choices, yes. Yes, Amy? So, um, all right, so let, let, let's just kind of like look at this a second. So here are these people who, I mean, they used to be slaves. Now they're in the wilderness. Um, they're like freaked out. They're looking for guidance. Why is God being so mean? Uh. Why isn't he like say, okay guys, you know, let's try to figure this out here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because there has to be a rite of passage. Oh. And this is their rite of passage. Without a rite of passage, we stay young, we stay what we think of as safe. We, we don't grow, we don't become, we can't keep becoming. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Carol, Polly? I'm, I'm thinking of many, through many uh, students through many years who are in their 20s, who I'm experiencing, I don't know their families, I just know they're like in this weird bewilderness where they're for the first time in their lives making all the decisions for themselves, and they're and they're they're trying trying to look like they know how to do it, and they don't know how to do it, and I'm they're so terrified, but they're excited about doing it, 
And just that, that little piece of life, which is so rocky. And, and for me, this is, this is any, any kind of question that says, why, does, why isn't God nicer? Um, um, for me, it's not a description of a God who's nice or mean. It's a description of life. And so this is this is this is the way life works, and I'm trying to I'm trying to negotiate in in what is rather than in what I wish would be. Uh, I think I was insufferable. <laughs> oh God, uh, I certainly yeah. meant well. We're <laughs> <laughs> in my twenties. Anyway, Pauline. <laughs> so I haven't thought this all out. It's rather complex. But if we go to a different place, and if we take, remember, this doesn't happen necessarily linearly, even though we're right. reading this as a journey. Mm -hmm. So you have to take it at a linear time. And if you take all of these actors in this story, be it Pharaoh and God, Egypt, that place of constriction, and the wilderness, and the children of Israel, and Moses, and God, take God too. And they're all pieces inside of us, happening simultaneously. It's kind of mind-blowing. I think you might have to be on something to fully really get it. But or, or just read the last lines of T.S. Eliot. That's yeah. Yeah. I'm serious. No, seriously. That's, yeah, I'm that's serious. what it's about, because at any moment in time in our existence, all of these things are going on. So if we try to think about, okay, what's my place of constriction, my place of bewilderment? What is my Pharaoh saying to me? What is this God voice inside me saying? What is my young child of Israel saying? Uh. My little more mature <laughs> child of Israel that learned something about these utterances we've been given. Only, and Moses who's trying to be my guide, you know, maybe in a good way. All of, and if we think of any moment in our lives, especially making decisions or having the next step or being involved with the craving and all these things going on, there's such a picture it's giving us of the human condition and of where we are spiritually in that human condition. That was beautifully expressed, Pauline. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's a, that's a nugget there. It's on tape. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, Gail? I, I just want to add, because I'm struck by it this time, that there's also that we're kind of, we're, we're talking about life in general, sort of, and which is everything presented is true. But also, in this text, they have just been given um, a year's worth of commandments as to how they are to behave moment by moment by moment That's right. toward one another. And, 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 when this, and, we're gone. and when this chapter ends, and it's, you know, put the fringes so you will remember, it's not just some um, general cravings, or it, it's like endless <laughs> commandments that they have vowed they will follow. And they have had absolutely no space between being slaves with no moral obligations, basically, to being over here with endless 
moral. I mean, which none of us would want to have to cope with. In right. Fact, or do want to cope with. In right. Uh, we tend not to think of it. Thank you. When you leave a diet class, the first thing you do is you go out and get a bag of potato chips. <laughs> right. Because there's yeah. too many rules. Exactly. And you, you, exactly. Your instinct is, uh, I wanna, no way I'm doing this. So there's no way I'm doing this. So, so also, so think about it in, terms, in those terms and also in terms of being born. Yes, I was thinking. Being born... And uh, God in the Torah, one of the main metaphors, metaphorical sort of treatments of God is God as parent, but as very inexperienced parent, uh, who expects his creations to measure up right away. And this is one of, this is like the meta, one of the meta stories of the Torah. It starts with Cain and Abel. It starts with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, da, da, and God keeps strategizing. Okay, well, I'll try this. Okay, I'll give them a Torah. You know, and there's something about raising raising a human being that God doesn't understand, because God is God. (laughs) And when I put it that way, I think about a human being, one of us, understanding our moral perfectibility, but not having the the patience or the, or the grasp on how come it's not happening, continually losing our cool. The prophetic voice, the one that sees what's possible. Uh, I'm hearing all of that in this. Jay, you want to say something? And then Amy. You know, in the little fact of TSL, you know. <laughs> TSL is enriching us. Just a little. Just anti-Semite. Just Another anti-Semite. What are you going to do? <laughs> Who wasn't an anti-Semite in the 30s? A few, a few, good, just a few. A few. Mostly, mostly Jews. T.S. Eliot, yeah, yeah. He was a good poet. So, so, no, no, I'm not I'm talking about the best. Um, I lost my thought for a moment. Yeah, picture yourselves, right? And this just cut to the fundamentals. You're in front of a holy man. Moses, yeah. Right? The holiest of all men, probably. And and either metaphorically or literally. And let's make that one assumption. You're in front of a holy man. The second assumption, we're all connected. I mean, this goes back to all kinds of philosophies. We're all yes. connected yes. somehow. Yes. Because, you know, you know, a, a, a butterfly, or, I don't know what's that. But um, and this is in front of your face. Right? We, we, we know we're all connected, so we have a responsibility to, to, to each other. And we're in front of not only a holy man, perhaps we even get some sense of, of the, what they call the eternal. And we're not noticing any of this. We're not feeling any of this. We're not spiritually in tune with any of this. We're thinking about cravings and fish and meat. Yep. And so I think that was put in here only as a, almost almost as a contrast of how petty their needs are when this is in front of them. And God got angry because he's saying, these people are missing the whole point. Mm-hmm. And Moses even demonstrated it because he paid attention <coughs> with the bush. And they sent those clouds over. And, and he slept all the people out there. He slept them out there. <laughs> so I think there's a common thread that, hey, pay attention to what's in front of you. 
And if you don't, no spiritual person or thing or being or feel is going to pay any attention to you because you're missing the whole point. Thank you. We're getting some great Torah here, aren't we? Um, Amy, you wanted to say something. Well, you you had um, referred to um, God as not as not being a particularly experienced parent. Uh, yes, if you if you think of him in that way, and and I guess I um, on on page nine sixty three. Um, God willing, we'll get there. We'll get there on twenty three. You know, and he 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 says. And the eternal answered Moses, is there a limit to the eternal's power? You shall soon see whether what I have said happens to you or not. I mean, that's as childish as... as, as yeah. So, so why? So you can't get stuck, in my opinion, that if you're, if you're stuck on the idea of God as all goodness, omnipotent, first of all, that doesn't make for a very interesting protagonist. Right? I mean, right, right. so, so, but we don't expect the gods and Greek myths to be undramatic, you know. Uh, so, the only way I can do this is by not letting, by trying to peel away the filter, the overlay of 2,000 years of God as benevolent goodness, and instead just encounter the story. Yeah. But, but why would the folks who wrote this choose that portrayal. Well, I don't know, except that, except that they experienced a pretty capricious universe, right? So, um, uh, and so, the the idea of projecting, and uh, so in Genesis chapter one we have a benevolent, orderly creation. That's one experience of life. And they start with that. But then, in other parts, we experience the universe as incredibly capricious and um, unpredictable. Uh, so that's how I try to imagine it. That that's why I don't even look for a consistent portrayal of God. Uh, because life isn't consistent and is contradictory and has all these. So that's the way I read it. I just don't try to harmonize it all. Um, that's how I deal with it. Um, Gail and Pauline, and then I want to move on. In response to Jay, I'm not sure that they are not aware. I think they are very aware of the presence of the divine. And I think they experience the divine as capricious as well. They don't trust what they're experiencing. And they're out there fully aware of this incredible power. That can break out and burn them up. At any moment. They've seen it again and again. Right. We remember in Egypt, uh, the, the, the dinner bell rang. <laughs> well, here the dinner bell sort of rings. Right, the manna falls, but yeah, 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 it's thank you. Day after day. Yeah, this, we eat this stuff again. We're going to get to that. Pauline? No, I just want to say, Amy brought up that. I think that's why, however this was written, that when the name of God is finally asked for, it's I'll become what I am becoming. Because nobody does know. And and that is truly in keeping with life as it is 
then and the mystery of life that we have now from moment to moment, <coughs> we don't know how life is going to interact with us. Wow. That's cool. So let's see. <laughs> First five. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. We're still on this chapter. <laughs> yeah. And the cucumbers, kishuim. Kishuim is squash. And the avatichim, the watermelons, the tachatsir, and the leeks, and the onions, and the shum, the garlic. Oh, that's what they're remembering. Now, Nafshenu yibesha, our gullets are shriveled. Nafshenu, our spirits, our souls are, are shriveled. And we have nothing but this manna to look at. <laughs> you know, like camp food. Um, okay, like being on a diet, yeah. <laughs> it's like the, dis the discipline of being on a diet. You're right, they are on a spiritual crash diet. You're enslaved by the food when you're That's right. Here they're enslaved with the, um, the temptation of all the manna when it's presented to them is presented by God as a test. Mm -hmm. So it's not it, it it's a test. Yeah. Uh, and they're responding to the test. Yeah. The Haman, now remember that man, that's what this line means. Mm -hmm. Remember that manna? Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, if you don't recall, they named it man because man means what? What is it? <laughs> Did you know that? The name of men, they, they saw this stuff on the ground, they say manhu. This is back in Exodus, which means, what is this? <laughs> oh, right. So, that, what the heck is this stuff? That is the name of the food they eat in the wilderness. It's a great name. Manna sounds much better, but the real translation would be, what the heck is this? <laughs> In addition to where the heck are we? <laughs> it's a test. It's like you were sent on an outward bound course. You know, it's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. You know, people who go on these wilderness courses or send their teens, troubled teens, on the wilderness yeah. courses. Yeah. See what it did for my son. Yeah. No, but they don't stay for 39 yeah. years. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like it. It feels like it. <laughs> it, feels like it. it when you like people that have been sick, when you lose your taste, your ability to taste food, everything, and you're looking, you know with your eyes what you're looking after, what you're craving, and you put it in your mouth, and it has no taste. Mm. It's like, what is this? You know, like camp food. Or, or like tofu. Like, <laughs> what is this? You know, this isn't what I'm It's going to say it right here, yeah. Taste, it does say there. To taste what, whatever you need is to taste like. Tofu. But if you're in a place of sickness, of constriction, of bewilderment, so that your taste buds are sick, you don't, you're not able to taste. Everything tastes like the same. What is this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's what I was going to say. Thank you. So uh, later... Because the manna is a test, imagine if they had to go out every day and, and harvest the tofu that was scattered on the ground <laughs> and then prepare it. Yeah. Every day? It tastes like chicken. Every day. Like so um, 
you know how um, uh, God says in Deuteronomy, remember the long way I guided you in the wilderness and gave you the manna to eat in order to test you and find out what was in your hearts, whether you could follow the, the commanded path or not. I think this outward bound analogy is actually very good. I, I really do. Uh, in terms of a troubled person who hasn't learned self-discipline, who has never learned what it means to take responsibility, being sent out like on a crash course with a tough guide. Um, uh, there's something to that. There uh, is, or when something happens in my life that is so horrible to me, once again, I get stabbed in the heart. feels like I'm getting stabbed in the heart. I, didn't, I wasn't expecting this. And all of a sudden, I get it. All of this happens to me. I, I just turn to mush. I, nothing, the taste goes away, the zest for life goes away, I feel like I'm just, what, where am I and what is this I'm supposed to do? Okay, so let's acknowledge one of the basic truths that we have to acknowledge in order to even move with this text, which is that life is hard. Right. right? That's the only way you're actually going to become a, um, an adult with any sense of satisfaction in life. Because if we live our whole lives expecting life not to be hard, uh, we're just going to get knocked on our ass every single day of our life. So we have to see what we're made of. I mean, this is that sort of topless, you know, another level of what's going on here. Uh, I just want to say yeah. that I find it the whole parent, God as parent thing, I find that very helpful. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, it's a nice idea to say, why, why wasn't the parent nice? But are you, are you a parent? I mean, sometimes you're really, really nice. And sometimes you are tough. <laughs> oh, you know? boy. Sometimes crazed and sometimes clear and tough. Right. All of those, yeah. But they yeah. have to learn their you know, I got you, Stu. I mean, they have to learn on their own anyway, whatever you do. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, that's what it helped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stu? I, I just, I'm thinking, I love this story. They're coming from slavery under Pharaoh. And we look at, say, parts of Africa and Russia in the old days. They go from one dictatorship to the new colonialism, Zimbabwe, right? The, the, the colonialism of those days was then erupted and a new one comes in, and there wasn't that 49, that 39 years that they had to be in the wilderness to figure out how we're we going to work this so that everyone benefits instead of a new dictator, mm-hmm. like the black coming in, rather than the white dictators from the past. Except the new dictator is part of the 39 years. I mean, you're just interpreting okay. what that period of transition Well, Moses was the good dictator in a sense. <laughs> Who knows? Okay. There's all kinds of trends. Right, right. Not every analogy carries all the way. It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) No offense. No offense. Um, So now, what was this manna stuff? Well, it was like coriander seed. And in color, it was like bedolach, bedellium. What's bedellium? I think it's whitish. Rashi says it's... Oh, the notes below? uh, A resinous gum. Okay. Rashi says it's crystal, and Ibn Ezra says it's like a pearl. Like a pearl. Okay, so it's quality of some kind of uh, resin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people would go about and gather it, and grind it between millstones, or pound it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, 
and make it into cakes. And it tasted like rich cream. But now I want you to look at the Hebrew for rich cream at the end of verse 8. Shad hashamet. Okay, so I looked up shad. Shad is breast. It's n- breast. Oh, breast. Oh, yes, it's a breast. Oh, it's breast milk. Mm-hmm. Breast milk. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. It's like I looked up every meaning of shot. It means breast. It doesn't mean anything else. Yeah. So, so. And it tastes like rich cream. I'm telling you, shaman is fat. But fat meaning uh, like in milk, cream. Cream. Uh, that's what, when you get sh- in, yeah, the shmenah is the, in, in, when you buy cream cheese or something, it says how much fat is in it, what the shaman content is. So, so it's like fatty breast. I just had to say, because this analogy, this is now going to like carry through the rest of the passage in a really interesting way, and it tasted like breast milk. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when the dew would fall upon the camp, the manna would fall upon it. Okay, so that's reminding us what the dew is. That was like an inter, uh, an interjection. Verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping, every clan apart. I don't know. Listen. And Moses heard the people boche crying with their families. Okay, that's why the baby image kept getting so strong with me. So hold on a second. I just want to point out that, that in my reading of this today, it's breast milk. They're crying with their families. You know, it's not each and their clan apart and rich cream. I mean, <laughs> I, I just don't think the translation cuts it here. Uh, so I wanted to point that out. Uh, sorry, Pauline, you wanted to say no, something? The words, and I don't know which word, or, or which one of the two, there's the word Yitzhak, Yitzhak, which means yell, kind of. Yitzhak, with an iron, mm-hmm. And bochet, which means cry. Right, Yitzhak is to, is to, Yitzhak is to cry out, bochet is to right. weep. So. They're very close to each other. I'm wondering, that it wasn't, it says um, in Exodus, that it wasn't until the children of Israel, was it cried out, or Yitzhak? Yitzhaku. Yitzhak, they cried out in their they anguish. They cried out to God. That, that God, God heard them in the crib, for God's sake, yeah. So uh, I'm wondering, because they keep they keep switching, because first, by Yitzhak Ha'amel Moshe, they cried out to right. Moses. Right. So Moses hears and has to do something about it. So the is kind of like moaning and groaning, kind of crying. It's crying. Bochel is crying. It's not. It's not, it's, it's not the kind of cry that comes from your soul. No, I don't think that's accurate. I just think Bochel is like weeping, so and Yitzhak is like, like a cry out from right. your soul. Yeah. So, because I'm, I'm looking to see. How the words are used differently. Yes, the and they might process. be synonyms. I'm not sure, I don't think so. but I don't I think, think so. Very so each people, each per, each, all the people crying in the, with their families, each lefetach ohalo, every person at the entrance of their tent. I just love this image. It's like all these tents, 
and everybody's crying with their families in the entrance of their tent. I don't know, I want to, it's just so vivid to me as a story, right? Um, they want the food and they're all crying in the openings of their tents. And most and v'yichar af Adonai ma'ot, and Eternal was very angry. And in Moses' eyes, this was bad. And that's where the word bad gets used again. Moses was distressed. This is like good, bad. And Moses said to Yod I'm on 962 now. Lama hare ota. Okay, if you look at that word, it means why have you made bad with me? Hara. With your servant. Why haven't I found favor in your eyes? That you have placed this burden of this people on me. Poor guy. <laughs> Let's keep going. We'll get the whole passage. Have I hariti et kol Have I carried this whole people? Laherayona's pregnancy. Have I and Horez's parent? Have I, but it's the feminine. So Moses takes on a total feminine persona here. Have I carried this people? Imanochi yilditihu? Have I given birth to this people? Kitomarile, that you should say to me, Sa'ehu bechekecha, carry it on your bosom? What page? 962. Verse 12. Carry it on your bosom? Like a nursemaid carries a suckling baby all the way to the land that you've promised to our ancestors? May I in Basar, where am I going to get the meat? to give this whole people. Because they're crying to me saying, give us meat. We'll, and we'll eat it. I can't carry this whole people myself. It's too much for me. The baby's too heavy. Heavy. And then the kicker, which you know I like. And if this is what you're going to do to me, please just kill me. So who's, that, who's whining now? I'm telling you. The baby's... The, the baby's crying in the tent, and the parents are standing out there. Kill me now. Kill me now. I can't take this. This is the best passage in the Torah. Hargani um, na, which literally means, please just kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, please just kill me. So I don't have to look at my misfortune, at this badness. Um, boy, that was a turnaround. He's just talking to his father-in-law. It's going to be It's going to be great. Climb in the car, kids. <laughs> Two miles late. Okay, here we go. Honk, honk. A mile on the turnpike. Kill me now. Kill me now. I love this part. Okay, sorry. It's just, it's so vivid. 
He was everything was good, and the father-in-law says he's smart. So I'm gonna go home. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the way. Um, see you, Moses. <laughs> that is my story. Um, I guess having just so sort of on the other side of having small children. I never thought of what that was like for him to let to see his daughter ride off into the wilderness with this whole. Oh, and yeah, yeah, he's saying goodbye to his daughter. And not a clue where they were going to end up. Wow. Well, that's another story of what, what the father-in-law was thinking as he... Like, he's, he, he's probably thinking, I did this already. They can come and visit. Great to be a grandparent. Okay, okay, okay. Bob, shh. I'm having my fun. And to personify the family reference, references and the mother and the father and the breasts and the father-in-law is all very vivid, but the thing is so existential. Also. This is so, come on, this is life mm-hmm. on a journey. Yes. Where were we? Who sent us? I thought we had leadership. Is the leader going to crap out? I mean, this is totally existential. Exactly. And just as important as any kid who feels like, where's, where are my parents taking me? Why do they have these fights? You know, so all I'm saying, Bob, is it's, it's all of it. It's all those levels. But you're saying it beautifully. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying, for me, it's, it's uh, total. It's not yes. just the anecdotal. I don't mean to diminish. The I understand. I understand. Relating it so personally right. to family life and what we experience either as children or parents. But certainly this is bigger. And it is bigger. And where I want to get to is attachment. You know, how, how children, the, the existential issues of being a human being. Yeah, and who do you trust? How do you gain constancy? Um, how are you not pulled constantly into your anxieties and your cravings? Uh, all the ways that we have to learn how to navigate a very challenging journey uh, that doesn't have any guarantees. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and uh, I, think the metaf- I think the primary metaphor you being used in this story, obviously, I don't know, is parenting. Uh, yeah, but and a crying baby. But it is the problem of any relationship, of any attachment. Totally with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Totally with How you. How do you belong? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What regrets have you got? Anyway, I said it. Yes, thank you. Said well. Said well. Uh, Carol? I just, I'm so struck by, before we get off the specific metaphor, I'm so struck by how accessible this is. And, and I guess that's why I like it so much, because it's accessible to and, me. And how I <clears> wish <throat> there were a bunch of 16-year-old kids sitting in here with us. I teach this passage to the bar mitzvah kids. And, and, and with that, with this much drama? I try. I'm sure you do. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm now envisioning the whole scene. and. What a fabulous scene this is, and mm-hmm. and, and it's it's so. I think it is. It's like so essential. It's like the centerpiece because because right away 
we're not dealing with some separate all good, all perfect being. We're dealing with living. And I, I, just, I just love it, and I hope every child in the universe gets to experience something like it. And here we are. We packed up the car. We got the rules for the journey, but now we're in the station wagon, you know, and it's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and that's, yes, that's a metaphor for, for life, yeah. And he's asking so. for mercy. He says, if, you, if I have found, you know, favor in your eyes, then it's like it's, it's mercy. It's more like mercy killing. Right, it's a mercy, it's a mercy <laughs> killing, which is one of the great things about Torah rhetoric. It says, because in, in the first sentence, he says, why have you dealt ill with me in verse uh, 11, right at the top of the page? Have I not found favor in your eyes that you've placed this burden on me? And then in the classic Torah um, literary form, then two verses later he says, well, if I ha- you have found favor in my eyes, then please just kill me. <laughs> because that's just, that's rhetoric. You know, it's, this, it's great, it's, it's rhetoric. It uses phrases and then turns them on their head, and that's so that's why I think of it as very high drama, dramatic storytelling also. And it isn't the parasha et nachta where the house et chanan comes, yeah, come et chanan, that where Moses is asking, if I found favor in your eyes, let me go to the promised land, let right. me see the promise. Mm. So that all, all is around. Um, and that also that attests to... Um, Moses, whatever Moses is within us, that there's that um, seed of ultimate faith, that ultimate faith that keeps grabbing at us in this, to our godly space. To be ne'eman, which means to be trustworthy. Uh, The word amen comes from that. To be steadfast, to be reliable. All those words come from the root amen. Uh, interestingly, another word that's related to amen is this word in um, uh, verse 12. Uh, am, am I supposed to be carry the man of rest and be the omen at Hayonek? Omen means nursemaid. So there's something implied in that word that's also reliable. Steadfast, always there. So nursemaid can have like an icky connotation, but when you say it this way, it's a whole other thing. The woman who nurses. The woman who nurses. Yeah, that's what I mean. What's icky about nursemaid? No, no, no. I'm not saying it's icky. But when I heard heard you read it, a nursemaid in our culture is is not a word for a highly thought of person, just just somebody who comes in and feeds the uh-huh. baby. Isn't it interesting that the word omen means a nursemaid? And, yeah. That's mm-hmm. beautiful. That's and, very and, helpful. Yeah. And I'm thinking that Moses takes on this quote maternal piece. Yeah. But what what is he expressing to he's ex, he's expressing this to the maternal aspect of God. Because he's talking about okay. mercy, he's talking about humane, he's talking about, and you know, it's not the angry, flaring, nasty thought, excuse me, for being so. Um, and he's talking to, to Adonai, well, but not that, that female part. That right. I'm telling another story now that 
that the moms went out for the day. <laughs> and it's the, 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 two, the dads are stuck. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, like, what? Bob. No, Bob's going to keep us on the, on, the, on the high road here. I don't mind at all. That's why I like having discussions. They're becoming people. Right. And the struggle for peoplehood includes organization, includes political and social, cultural and moral dimensions. Right. And leadership. And right. This is about finding authority or being authorized by yourself, by others. Authorization is part of leadership, is part of being more than a tribe. That's right, and that is the perfect segue into what happens exactly next in the narrative, which says, so Moses says, I can't do this. I cannot do this. This is big. Then, verse 16, so the Eternal One said to Moses, gather for me 70 of Israel's elders of whom you have experience as elders and officers of the people and bring them to them to the tent of meeting and let them take their place there with you. And I will come down and speak with you there. And I will draw from the spirit of leadership that is upon you and put it upon them. And they shall literally they shall share the burden of carrying this people. And you, well, Bob, Bob was anticipating exactly the larger thing, which is Moses says, I can't do it alone. I need some other grown-ups here. Um, but, but this is a repeating story. Yeah. Yes, this when, happened in Yitro. With Yitro, where all the people came to Moses for decisions. And Moses assigns, God, Moses no, said, Yitro Jethro. told Moses to assign yeah. leaders yeah. of ten and a hundred, That's right. and a thousand, and ten thousand. So a little aside, when you read these portions in Numbers, many of the stories are recapitulations with variations and twists on stories in Exodus. Yeah. And um, again, Mary Douglas's theory, when she talks about the pedimental composition of the Torah, is that Exodus and Numbers, you can, I've actually made these lists so I could see what she was talking about. There are a, a whole number of stories, the manna, the, the sharing of the leadership, the, um, uh, um, the, the, the rock pouring out water, are all repeated in Exodus and in Numbers. And her theory is that they, they act as kind of like uh, pillars holding up Leviticus as the Holy of Holies in the center of the Torah. So yes, the stories repeat with variations. And so we've heard this motif before. Absolutely. Um, this is all also a building, because this is bigger than the moment in Exodus. It, that's it, true. It, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a building. On there's the, a build. In the moment in Exodus, Jethro says, Moses, you're going to wear yourself out. Assign magistrates for a smaller court and bring the big case to you. And Moses does so. Here, it, yes, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's built some. Okay, because this is now the Holy Spirit. That's God tells him. 
because mm -hmm. he didn't learn the lesson from Yitro. Apparently. And he just said goodbye to Yitro, too, which is very interesting very, when you think yeah, about very it. Important. And it happens again. Yeah. Yitro's one of the people I want to tell a developed story about more. He fascinates me. Okay. They shall share the burden of the people with you, and you shall not bear it alone. And say to the people, purify yourselves. Now, there's a new thought. Set Park B. Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. This is where God starts to lose it. But but you're going to see that I'm also going to keep the big picture here. For you have kept crying, whining, in the in in the ears of Yodhevafe, saying, "Miyachilenu basar, who's who's gonna feed us meat? Ki tovlanu There's the word good, for it was good for us in Egypt. God is going to give you meat and you shall eat. Not one day, not two, not five, nor ten, not twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you're disgusted by it. Oh boy. Four. Now again, on the on the uh, this makes a great family scene. Um, I'll give them meat, <laughs> and then and we had a children's book called Bread and Jam for Francis. Oh yeah. Yeah, where Francis decides she's only eating bread and jam, and so the way her mom deals with it is not as angry as God, but she only gives Francis bread and jam at every meal, while the family's eating spaghetti and she's and eating there, and finally she realizes... With hot dogs, until it's coming out their nostrils, uh, right? Do you remember Mrs. Pickle Wiggle? Does anyone remember those stories? Yeah. I do. That was also, also her yeah, solution. Yeah, her solution. That's no. right, that's right. You want meat? I'll give you meat. <laughs> <laughs> but the bigger picture is um, that, uh, again, this is about, remember, this whole episode started because they craved a craving. They craved meat. So there's some natural progression of what happens when you indulge your craving to at the exclusion of all else, where your craving is what rules you. My father did that when he caught my brother smoking. He made him sit there literally and smoke like a whole pack of cigarettes until he got sick. But it might have been a good strategy. But that's a common smoking strategy. Drinking too, I think. Yeah, nimast, and and the word maastem, maastem means you are dis, you're disgusted by it until you're disgusted by it. So think about uh, benders of various kinds, where you finally kind of like, God, what was I doing? Um, on the one hand, you indulged it. On the other, but this leads us into the nature of addiction. Right, how cravings can turn into addictive. Um, because they give you something, but it's not what you really need. And until it's coming out of your nostrils and you're disgusted by it, for you have rejected Yodhe from your midst, Kirbachem, from inside you. 
and have cried and whined before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? Oh. Isn't this key? What, what God is saying is, all right, so I'll, I'll give you the, 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 the birds till the, the meat comes out of your nose. But it's not so much, you know, I want meat, but you're rejecting me who, are, who is right in front of you. Here in the moment. Right. Right? But you have to give up everything for that. You have to give up your cravings. The things that pull you out of this moment. You have to not pursue them in order to have me. Um, well, it's that, be careful what you wish for, the monkey's paw, all the places where the cravings turn into... Badness. 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 So just even before it turns into really badness, it, a craving itself in, indicates that takes you out of the moment. Right. Whatever that what? right. That, exactly. that doesn't have to be a dramatic craving. That at any moment, if you're craving something, if that becomes the central piece of your whole being, you're not in the moment. Nothing else exists. Right. Well, it's right. it's but idolatry. It's, but it's not this. It's that. That's where the problem the is. Talmud is that you're not sitting with this. Right. Right. But you're looking at that. Exactly right. Right. Whatever catches your eye. Pregnant women. Oh, I call yes. It, I call it the monkeys out of the cage, actually. I mean, you, but, you know, a mind is packing all kinds of pregnancies. Yeah. Hold on, hold on. These are all good points. Yeah. Well, you know, just repeat it. I call it the monkey out of the cage because our mind is always packed with extraneous thoughts, regressive past, anxiety about the future. Missing what your life is right here in front of you. And I see this whole thing again. You've got a high spirits in front of you, and you guys are getting lost. I mean, you know, even today, you know, this mindful meditation that's cutting through almost all... Yes, it's... Uh, mindful, mindfulness meditation has made a big, big swath of right. impact. It's all about the same thing, you know? Just accept without judgment what's going on in front of you. Period. Otherwise... You're going to be in a wilderness. But the, I think there's something more. My question is, how do you learn to identify what the true craving is? What is the journey and what is the wisdom we need on this journey to identify what is the real craving? Why do you think there is a craving? I, mean, why are there you is, I think there is a craving because I think it's that for me. Only for me, that it's that 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 I think we're each born with some internal craving to be close to God, whatever we call this mysterious piece of life or piece of life to be one with the oneness. I think that there is some of this in everybody, and we recognize it at different points and times in different ways, but we don't always understand how to name it and how to fill it. And maybe this, and when we do, and there's this balance of all of these teachings that we've been given that help us form, I think, this closeness, is when we're most, for me, when I'm most at peace. Thanks. 
So what, sit with the, stay with all that, because we should get to the end of this story today, because it <laughs> keeps weaving together the larger, the, lar- the, the larger narrative about leadership along with this also narrative about our cravings and how they can... Now, I should mention that um, classic rabbinic, I'll call it sacred psychology, what we've inherited from the rabbinic tradition, is that we are born with cravings. That's called the Yetzer Hara. The, the impulse, no, in, translated as the evil impulse. But the rabbis are clear that it's not inherently evil. It only becomes evil, and the word is Ra. It only becomes bad if it rules us. But the rabbis are also clear that if we don't find a way to tap our passion, our cravings, we're living lives that, have, that are not as intended. So we are supposed to learn how to take our Yetzirah Hara, and this is, the, this is understood as the role of parents and teachers, and discipline it so that young people can grow up learning how to m- master and manage their cravings and passions and put them in service of a greater good. Uh, so I want to put that out as kind of the basic Jewish view. Not that we're supposed to become detached from our passions, but that we're supposed to learn how, because that, that's not how God made us, but we're supposed to learn how to manage them and uh, uh, transform them into the ends that will serve the greatest good. That's in a nutshell of what sort of the Jewish understanding of how, how it works. But let's go on with the story. Moses said, okay, now it's switching. So God's, Moses said, God and Moses are still talking. Look, now Moses is doubting God, because God just said, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out of your nostrils. Moses said, the people who are with me number 600,000 foot soldiers, and you say, I'm going to give them enough meat to eat for a whole month. I still think they're having their conversation while everyone's crying in their tents. This is all still going on. They're giving us the whole scene. Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice them? Or could all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to suffice them? And you would have answered Moses, Is there a limit to, you, to my power? You shall soon see whether I have said what happens to you or not. You shall see. I'm going to show you. Well, yeah, but also, <laughs> Moses went out, but Moses is also having a moment of doubt. Uh, Moses went out and reported the words of the Eternal to the people. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Then, after coming down in a cloud and speaking to him, the Eternal drew upon the spirit that was on him and put it upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, or they prophesied. In other words, they had the, they had the, the spirit. Uh, the lo yasafu, and it says, but they did not continue. It's not clear that that's the translation at all. It could also mean they did not cease. They did not continue, but it says lo yasafu, which is equally translated as they did not cease. What does it have there? Cease. C-E-A-S-E. Prophesying. They can, in other words... The opposites. Yeah, we don't know exactly what this phrase means. I've read both translations, and I am not clear. Here oh, says, see, here's did not stop. Did not stop. Did not continue. It's confusing. It's confusing. So leave it for now. 
because this is the important part, the most important part. So, two men, so now it's been shared with 70. Two men, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in camp. And the spirit rested upon them. They were among those recorded, meaning they were among the 70. But, I don't know, they'd been in the men's room or something <laughs> when the bus left. I, sorry, I'm just on this bender here. Um, and and they say they had not gone out to the tent. And they spoke in ecstasy. Now, if they yit nabu, the word navi, which means prophet, is the verb yit nabu. They prophesied in the camp, not out at the tent. So it's out of the precinct of God. The spirit of prophecy has burst out of the precinct where it's supposed to be taking place. And a youth ran out and told Moses, saying, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who was Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And Moses said to them, Hamikane Atali, are you zealous for me? Are you worried about me? You wrought up on my account? Would that the entire people of God were prophets and that the Eternal put the divine spirit upon all of them. That's an amazing... amazing. Yeah. So here's Moses. Why was Moses selected for leadership? It's consistent through the Torah. Because he was a Democrat. No, Bob. <laughs> a small D Democrat. A small D Democrat. He's the struggle with sharing power and the struggle with sharing authority, and whether it's God given or given by one leader to another and named, there's an openness to Moses that's remarkable. Mo Moses, Moses, it will be a, a, in chapter 12, which unfortunately we're not going to get to today. God says to Moses, uh, God says to Aaron and Miriam, who have challenged Moses' leadership, says, uh, um, oh, verse 3. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any human being on earth. Moses is, is in this role because he doesn't think he's anybody special. That's why he can be the true prophet. We ought to repeat that, right? That's why he can be the true prophet, because he truly doesn't think he's anybody special. His ego is not... I, 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 I made a joke when I said, because he's a Democrat, a D, small D. Small D. Even that's a joke for me, because... The issue is so complex, and the Jews have been dealing with it from the beginning, mm -hmm. and that seems to me what's so remarkable about the Torah. It does not settle the issue of how, how are we going to... It doesn't settle the issue. Let's take this now way out of the uh, family vacation model into how you create a society. You have to have leadership. And it insists that we review it and rediscuss it and rediscover it and reanalyze it. We have. How you create a just society is, not, is, is, is incredibly complex and multivalent because you need leadership 
but you also need leadership that recognizes the value of every person. So the, the, there's a midrash, for example, a famous midrash, um, about the building of the Mishkan. How, you know, B'Tzalel is singled out as the um, craftsman who can craft everything, endowed with the spirit of wisdom and knowledge. Moses builds the Mishkan. Aaron serves in the Mishkan. But the Midrash, just to really, um, uh, just kind of, what's the word? Just take it into a sentence, says, but none of it would have happened without the people who made the tent pegs. Who made the tent pegs. Because the tent couldn't have been erected without them. Right, so we have the we have this incredible. It's not. It's more than a paradox. It's an incredibly complex question. Um, Moses. So thank you, Bob. And this is again what makes the Torah great for me is that it doesn't answer the question. It presents the complexity. Uh, yes, Moses has to be the leader. Moses' leadership has to be challenged. But Moses, on and on and on. Mm. Moses' self is transparent. He is in the moment again and again and again, except for his righteous anger, which overtakes him mm-hmm. so often. Mm-hmm. He um, doesn't have a lot of baggage that he carries. Mm-hmm. And so he's simply present again and again. And among the baggage that he doesn't have are things like arrogance, things like selfishness, things like all of those cravings for power. He doesn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. He just is here. Yes. And so he sees the divine all the time. You, thank you. He, so he sees God in everything. Because yes. he's not his... He, that, that's a beautiful way of putting it. In Parshat Pekude, back in, in Exodus, it says, Ele Pekude, these are the accountings of the Mishkan. And it lists how many shekels for everything, how many pieces of gold, how many... And the rabbis say, what is this all about? It's because Moses was a transparent leader. Mm-hmm. and wanted it to be clear uh, exactly where every penny had gone. That's the rabbis expanding on that also. Bob? He's, yes, the emphasis on being here, of course, makes all kinds of sense to me, but it's important, I think, to see the engagement. He's here engaging without the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's and right. so, right. in an ongoing struggle to discover and work out our agreement. That's what it That's present, what means. Right. He, well, not present and... Not just hanging out. Right. No. Not, no. Hold on. Yes. Not present and dispassionate. Not present and just observing. Present and fully engaged. Right. Mm-hmm. Engaged. What a challenge, because our engagement... Right, and the challenge of being engaged is that as soon as you're engaged, you're personally invested. And so you're, so you're going to try to have it come out the way you want, and yet that's the paradox and complexity of being a human being. Uh, the Rabbi Milton Steinberg... Uh, called it, the love is the ability to hold with open arms. And I've always remembered that because it's like, it's a paradox, but it's true also. Mm-hmm. To be engaged is to, in that way is to hold, but
but with open arms. It's a beautiful uh, way of saying it, isn't it? Uh, let's get to the end of the passage. So Moses then, verse 30, would that all my people, all God's people were prophets. Don't worry about me, he says. One of the best lines in the Torah. He's, uh, it's amazing that Moses can be telling God a little while ago, just take me out and kill me. And now he's, I love Moses. Um, Moses then re-entered the camp together with the elders of Israel. Together. Um, a wind from, now back to the other narrative. A wind from Yudhevave started up, swept quail from the sea and strewed them over the camp. About a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on that side, all around the camp, and some two cubits deep on the ground. That's like three feet. That's a lot of birds. The people set to gathering quail all that day and night and all the next day. Even the one who gathered least had at least ten chomers. Uh, hundred bushels, they say. Okay. Uh, and they spread them out all around the camp. The meat was still between their teeth, not yet chewed. When the anger of the Eternal blazed forth against the people, and the Eternal struck the people with a very se severe makkah. They say plague. Um, makkah is a, a hit. Yeah, a strike. A blow, thank you. Terrible blow. Okay, and now, here's the end of the episode. That place was named Kivrot Hata'ava. Literally, the burial place of craving. Because the people who had the craving were buried there. Uh, because the craving people were buried. But the name of the place is the burial place of the craving. So, yeah, Jay. Don't you see a parallel between Yes. Buddhists claim we're born to suffer, and, and the root of the suffering is clinging, and we all cling to something, and it's, and it's this form of craving. And to over transcend that suffering, you got to get rid of your clinging. So here, you have this stuff your face with meat, and you'll get rid of your craving, and this is where craving is buried. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful, uh, universal message. Uh, well, uh, Jay, I always think these are universal messages. Just uh, uh, parlayed through uh, our stories, you know. But I follow you. But there were other things people wanted to say. I'm not sure. I I want to get rid of my craving. I want to know that I'm having it. I'm not big on getting rid of. I'm not big on surgically removing things. I'm big on awareness and practice. So. Uh, so something about that last line bothered you? No, just oh, what, oh, what Jay was saying. About that. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, he was saying he wasn't. Jay didn't say get rid of your craving. Jay said get, no. He said get rid of your clinging. Well, I I don't want to get rid of clinging either. I, I mean, everything to me serves some purpose at some time. You know, if I'm in some situation, uh, two of us are drowning, I'm going to cling. <laughs> you know what I mean? It serves at times. I. Nicely put. I have a problem with, you know. Okay, so I was thinking of the, when I think of the clinging, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I was thinking of the clinging to, um, 
well, there's so many ways to say it. The, one of the arcs of this story for me that begins, they craved a craving, and ends, and that was the burial place of the craving, is that hopefully, as a story, something was learned. Um, something was transformed and or learned um, about how they're going to move forward on their journey from this, yeah. from this place. Yeah. And it was painful and difficult. So, uh, but they are going to move forward. That's but the they point. Weren't, and they're going and they're going to go through these things again and again. The next thing's going to happen with more experience. Yeah. So that, that's something okay. as so, you said. So so again, let me be fairly Oh, Gail. Chatzerot, yes. So uh, and then they went from the graves of craving. They traveled to Chatzerot and they were in Chatzerot. A Chatzer is a um a um uh, what a paddock, a a um, um, no no no, it's a, like a big fenced-in field, a pasture, a pasture, a meadow. Um, I don't know. Interesting, huh? Sounds like discipline. Over chatzay sadik katamayifra, odinuvun beseva nim ranimu shtulim bevet adonai bechatzrot eloheinu yafrihu. It planted in the planted in the house of God, they will blossom in the courtyards of the divine. So chatzrot means an outdoor space that's enclosed. But um, it's interesting; it's enclosed with some boundaries. Where they're going is not that same wilderness, but now there's going to be. Some yeah, it's interesting. They because yes, that's never an accident. If they went from the. They went from Kibrota Ta'ava, which is an unbelievably symbolic name. It's screaming at you. What? The, the burial place of craving? Uh, and they went to Chatzirot. We need to examine what Chatzirot might mean. Mm-hmm. So it's not, the, it's not the wilderness then anymore, perhaps. Well, it's a place in the wilderness. The whole context of this is in the wilderness. Did I see another hand? Yes, it's, we'll have to stop in a minute. Um, up until now, uh, the, the people were all kind of one entity that all had the craving. All are crying. All, all are crying. And it started with the riffraff somehow, whatever that means, yeah. But now um, the people who had the craving are bur- buried, and the, but then the people set off, set up again. Right. So it, c- could we understand this, that it's really, um, that some people um, were able to change and some people were not able to change? You, you could, and these are, the, these are the ones who can continue on the journey. But uh, I, I, I don't take the story that literally because uh, um, the people seem to be an entity, uh, you know, not uh, discrete in the, as, as part of the story. They're the people. So they, some aspect of them gets buried there. So again, I'm thinking about, say, a wilderness expedition that where you're being tested and where uh, you have your great insight and you realize because of this test that you were just through, oh, now I understand something, and I'm going to take this with me as I move on. It, that's kind of how I'm reading it at this moment, rather than individual. Some died and some didn't, or some. Uh, this is different than, say, uh, the golden calf, where people are actually cut off, killed. People, uh, they go move on without those people. This feels like another aspect like, like, like the Jethro uh, 
Moses thing we just talked about. That there's there's signs of growth, signs of movement. Uh huh. So okay. So yes, the class we'll have class next week, but and not the week after. So class on the 18th, and then I'm going to find out when in July we can meet. Depends on the synagogue schedule. Thank you. Yes, Stu. Would you think that the uh, before you go, Jim. were buried there? Could that be a metaphor? Yeah, I think it'd be a metaphor. Yeah, rather than being dead, their cravings were buried. Yes, because the Hebrew says, I just want to repeat, they named that place the burial place of craving. Okay, not that the people died, the craving Right, died. the craving somehow got buried. We could have a ball with that line too. So anyway, thank you for doing that with me. I had to read that story with you. Thank you. Yeah, what, what?